Thank you. Well, this is, uh, uh, I decided to wear this tonight because it's a lot cooler. And I notice every time I get up here, uh, there's a lot of hot air lingering around the pulpit. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to start hot and get hot, so I wore this. And this is formal attire in the Philippines. It's called a barong. And uh, uh, they have different varieties, of course, but uh, they're very comfortable. I want to mention to you before I get into the message that we do have uh, some more of these journals. If you have not gotten one, uh, some have commented to me how meaningful it was to read this. This entire journal is uh, uh, dedicated to how do you forgive others. It was handed out as a uh, monthly journal that we give to our Filipino students uh, to help them to counsel uh, people who are angry. When I started in the ministry of counseling years ago, I thought it'd be nice. You know, I, I, I envisioned sitting on a, a rocking chair on the front porch, sharing a cup of coffee. Every once in a while, some poor soul would come down the driveway, and we'd just talk. And because I didn't like conflict, I thought it'd really, really be nice to be in a ministry where there's no conflict. <laughs> Boy, was I surprised. Number one problem we faced almost every counseling session was anger. Anger is one of the, and unforgiveness, one of the uh, prevailing sins. I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Thank you, Pastor, for the privilege of preaching. And thank you, church, for your friendship, your support, your fellowship, and the privilege of uh, calling you my home church. And uh, I love being here. I wish we could be here longer. Pray for us as we leave Thursday. We'll be going to... Uh, a meeting in Monroe, North Carolina, all, all day Sunday, and then I'll speak at a pastor's conference on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday I'll speak at a church in Durham, North Carolina, and then on Sunday I'll uh, preach in a church in um, near Myrtle Beach, or North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and then we'll come home. And then we'll be here, and I say home, we'll be coming here, and then we'll be leaving the next week I think that's for uh, Idaho and Wyoming. So pray for us as we're on the road. Uh, our, we are uh, prayerful that we can work out Maria's immigration situation while we're here. At the same time, we have meetings in seven states and uh, more churches than that, and we want to be a blessing as we want to be tonight. Now I must confess to you that um, every time I preach, I am, I don't want to use the word nervous, uh, but burdened uh, at the very least because this is such a heavy responsibility to stand between God's people and uh, eternity, between God's people and sin, between God's people sometimes um, and God himself, to represent God to God's people. It's a scary thing. Uh, and there are some sermons that I preach that are more burden, uh, more burdening than others. And this is one because uh, the message of this passage of Scripture is so, uh, so sacred that I approach it in fear and trembling. Uh, I think it was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones that called these eight verses the highest peak of all uh, of the peaks in the entire glorious mountain range of Scripture, truth, and divine revelation. The highest peak of all the mountains and all the range that God's truth exists is found in these verses. And I agree with him because every word is pregnant with power and with truth. Every word is just waiting, in my view, to change a life. And we're going to see that as we go through it. So follow with me, beginning in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that 
uh, ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Our Father, we come before thee tonight, and I pray earnestly, Lord, for these your children, the sheep of your flock who are gathered to hear the word of God, not the word of a man but the Word of God. I pray that you would open their hearts to the truth, that you would break up the fallow ground of their minds. I pray that you would water the truth with your spirit and bring forth an eternal harvest. But Lord, I confess to you that in my strength, I have nothing. I am nothing. I can do nothing apart from thee. And I pray that you would uh, uh, crown this sermon with your presence and with your blessing and that it would be a life-changing message for many tonight. May Christ be honored, and God be glorified, and may the Spirit be freed to empower this hour with His presence. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that um, it is one of the, there's a point in grace, he said, uh, which is as much above the ordinary Christian as the ordinary Christian is above the worldling. A point in grace in which the, uh, which the ordinary Christian, uh, there, which is as far above the ordinary Christian as the ordinary Christian is above the people of the world. You put it in another way. Most Christians live such subnormal Christian lives when they look up and see normal Christianity they think it's abnormal. Most of us as Christians live on a subnormal plane of uh, Christianity or spirituality. And when someone comes along, like Paul here in this passage, and he writes something so rich and so deep, it's like, wow, that's so far above me. I, I, can't, I can't comprehend that. I don't understand that. I came to realize in my life some time ago that that I was operating so much in the energy of the flesh. My training and my experience as a Christian and my, my first um, uh, experiences as a pastor were all geared to productivity, to performance, and to uh, 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 doing something in the energy of the flesh. And it worked. Now, by the way, I was taught pragmatism. Pragmatism basically is the belief that you judge the veracity or the validity of a concept uh, by its productivity. Does it work? Does it function? Pragmatism is uh, a cancer in the body of Christ because we are not looking uh, at uh, God's purpose. We are looking at our plans. Now, my plan was to have a big church. My plan was to pastor a large church. My plan was to have a growing church. Bodies, bucks, and buildings, and more this year than last year. And I had it. I saw the growth. I saw the crowds. But one day I was preaching, and, uh, and, and, and by the way, the, the, the me I, I, mean, I would be embarrassed to tell you the methods. But I will tell you that the methods brought our church from an average of 145 to 350 to a high day of 806 months. The visitors were sitting on the platform. And everyone was saying, oh, you've got a, you've got a successful church. You, you, God is blessing. Well, if you take that standard, then if success is a crowd and the crowd is God's blessing, then God, God is blessing the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and every other cult that exists. One day, I, one night I preached. I, 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 I was not ready to preach. I'd had a couple of unexpected deaths that week and in crisis counseling and hospitals. Just a, a horrible, busy week. And, and I went into the pulpit and I was not ready. I had nothing. And so I just opened my Bible and uh, 
and, you know, I pointed at a verse and read it and hollered. <laughs> That's not always a good thing to do. Um, but you know what? I gave the invitation and the altar was crowded four deep. And I, I, I remember consciously behind the pulpit looking down and, and saying to myself, well, that wasn't so bad. Look what I did. And if ever I had a direct uh, connection with God in a moment of time, I did standing behind that pulpit. It was like a spiritual fist in my chest. And I realized this thought, who do you think you are? You think you did that? And I came to a crossroad in my ministry and I began to realize I, I had to choose. Am I going to do it in the flesh and take the credit or am I going to allow God to do it despite me? I used to think God blesses because of a man. I don't believe that anymore. I think God blesses in spite of a man. There's nothing in us that merits the goodness and the grace of God. If we, if we could, it wouldn't be grace. But much of my Christian life and much of my ministry for years was like this. I was operating in the energy of the flesh and congratulating myself that I was seeing all that I was seeing, but I was empty inside. I, I, was, like a, I was like a Roman candle that went off and made a lot of noise and a lot of colors, but really had no purpose and had no, had no power. And then God... Uh, God began to move in my heart and, and, and because of my marriage. My marriage was suffering because of this. I was so, so determined I was going to make something of myself and get a name and have a legacy and all that, that I, I neglected my wife. And then I struggled with something that a lot of men struggle with, and that is a really feeling that you're in love. You know, I have men tell me all the time. They say, well, Brother Benny, in counseling, they say, well, I'm not an emotional person. And I ask them, well, do you ever get angry? Well, yeah, all the time. I say, well, you're an emotional person then. Uh, you just don't, you're saying you don't, you're not a loving person. And that, that would describe me because I, I was, so I began to pray, Lord, I want to love uh, my wife and, and, and I want to love people. And I want to understand what it means to love. I mean, to really feel love. And so I started out on a journey, and I opened a journal. And I started journaling. The first three pages, basically, were as I began to study about love. But uh, it took me to this passage of Scripture because I wanted to love with the love of Christ. And I read, <laughs> I read this. I laughed when I read this. I said, God, what are you telling me? that we may be able uh, to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. To know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. I said, thanks a lot. <laughs> You're telling me I need to love with the love of Christ, but at the same time, you can't know how to do it. Well, this doesn't mean it bypasses knowledge. It means it surpasses knowledge. When you know the love of Christ, the only way you know the love of Christ is not through knowledge. Something has to happen for you to love Christ and to understand the love of Christ that goes beyond your knowledge. We, don't we, we, we need to understand, we need to use knowledge, but that's not the end of it. This surpasses knowledge. And what is it that surpasses knowledge? There's one phrase in the middle of, of this uh, passage that is the center of Paul's prayer. Uh, Matt Olson from Northland Baptist Bible College called me one time. I was on the faculty, uh, graduate faculty there. And he called me for the in-service uh, 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 preaching of the faculty. He said, would you preach on the prayer of Paul in chapter 1 of Ephesians? And I said, well, I've been studying the prayer of Paul in the third chapter, and I've journaled over 250 pages on it, and uh, I'm full of it, and it's in my heart. Could I preach on that? And he said, well, that'd be fine. Well, 
uh, when I got there, uh, you know, uh, the Lord used it mightily and used it in my heart. But uh, it, it, this prayer of Paul, the prayers of Paul in the, in the book of Ephesians are intense. They are powerful. This is a prayer of Paul. He is praying. He's bowing his knee to pray for the church of Ephesus. And in that prayer, he centers everything on one thing. And I want you to see this because the first half of the prayer works up to it. The second half of the prayer works away from it and is based on it. In the center of this prayer is the diamond. It is the point of the prayer. It is the power of the prayer. And it's this phrase in verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now understand what this, what this means. Paul is saying that uh, Christ needs to have a part in your life. Now this does not mean, this is not talking about salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation because he's writing to save people. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith does not mean I want you to be saved. He said, he, what he's saying is I want you to have something different. So it's not salvation. It's not even sanctification in terms of long-term or permanent because it's in the aorist tense in the Greek language. The aorist tense on a piece of paper would be a dot. Nothing before, nothing after, one time right on the paper. <laughs> a present tense would be a line that you would draw on the paper. And the line would continue on out. In fact, when the Bible says, and, and when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's in the present tense. That means keep on continuously, continually keep on being filled. But this is in the aorist tense, what it means is one-time action. It's an epical event that happens at one point in a Christian's life after salvation. Now, if you want to know what it's connected to, uh, if you look on down there a little bit in that prayer in verse uh, 19, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. So what, what he is saying is, here's what I'm praying for you, Ephesians 4. I am praying that you will have this encounter with Christ in such a way that he will dwell in your heart uh, by faith. That he will dwell in your heart, not salvation, not sanctification, and not even just surrender. This is not talking about Christ being a guest. It's not talking about Christ being a tenant. It's not talking about Christ being a roommate. It's not talking about Christ being a, a co-owner. It's talking about Christ being master and owner and at home in your house, in your heart. Christ is not at home in everyone's heart. The blessed relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit of God begins at salvation. We know when a person is saved that, that the Holy Spirit comes into their heart, into their life. But he, he is not necessarily at that moment comfortable in your house. So he knocks on the door and he says, uh, I, I stand at the door and knock, will you let me in? And you do. He comes in and he, he, he comes into the into the, inside the door. Now he's in your home. He's a part of your life, but he's not yet comfortable because he looks in the living room and he sees some magazines on the coffee table and, and he says to you, I, I'm sorry, I cannot, I cannot go in that room. And you say, well, Holy Spirit, I want you more than I want that, those magazines. I'll clean that up until he fills that room. Goes into the kitchen, opens a refrigerator. I can't stay in this room with that in the refrigerator. You clean out the refrigerator. You say, Holy Spirit, you're more important to me than that. And he does a room by room, closet by closet, drawer by drawer search of our heart. And he looks in every inch of our lives and our hearts and he's saying, are you going to 
am, am, am I going to be able to stay in this room? Will you get rid of that so that I can be at home? This process of the Holy Spirit going through the compartments of your heart is very important because He wants to be the master. He wants to be in control in a loving way, but He wants to be at home. He's not at home with a lot of people. A lot of people grieve Him. We grieve the Holy Spirit. The worst thing about sin, in my view, and I, I, I remember when I was a young Christian, I, I started out, I didn't understand confession. I thought confession meant to uh, admit that you sin, and so I did that, and I thought, well, maybe it means to list, make a list of the sins, and I did that. And then I realized that confess, homologeo, means uh, speak the same word or to agree with God about my sin, and I did that. And finally I came to realize that the most important thing about sin is what David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. The most important thing about confession is not relief uh, over my sin. Uh, it's not to find happiness Again, it's not to purge myself of guilt. That's not the purpose of confession. The purpose of confession is, is to agree with God how much I hurt Him. Until we get to that level, until we get to the point where, where our confession of sin is related to God's pain instead of our pain, we haven't begun to confess. I've had a lot of people in counseling cry over their sin. Many people cry over their sin. They cry over their regrets. They cry over their pain. They cry over their losses. They cry over their burden. They cry over their unhappiness. They cry over their guilt. But nobody cries over how they hurt God. It's all about me. God is not comfortable in the heart of a Christian who's only interested in having a nice home. This experience that Paul is talking about here is a supernatural, one-time, epochal event. According to Herbert Lockyer, a one-time, epochal event. One time it happens, not before, not since. And Paul is saying, if you look at the beginning of that prayer, Paul is saying, for this cause, I bow my knees. Now, for what cause? Go to, back to chapter 3, verse 1. For this cause... I, Paul, and then you find from verse 1 to verse through verse 13 a parenthetical departure. In other words, uh, he lost his train of thought, and now he is off on this parenthetical rabbit, <laughs> I hate to say anything Paul does is a rabbit trail, but he takes a, uh, a, 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 a different approach, a different thought, and he pursues that. Then he comes back. So we have to go to chapter 1. And we look at verse 1, rather, for this cause, he says. What cause? If you, go, if you look carefully at chapter 2, we're, and we're not going to take time to do that, there were two thoughts on Paul's mind when he wrote to the church of Ephesus. And it was all about the Gentile believers. Because there had been, for, uh, throughout history, there had been this gap between Jews and Gentiles. They never got together. And the Jews did not like the Gentiles even after they got saved. Many of the Jews did not like them. They didn't want to be around them. They, they thought they were second-class Christians because we are uh, the chosen people of God. And, and can I say this to you? Uh, God did not choose the Jewish nation because they were good. They were good because God chose them. They have nothing to brag about. In fact, you look at their history, there's, there's really uh, nothing to set them apart in their faith in God and their trust in Christ. In fact, if, they, if, if anything sets them apart, it's a rebellion. So we, we, need, to get the, we need to get over the, uh, that notion, but they never got over that notion, and so they didn't want the Gentiles. And, and the church at Ephesus, the Gentiles were being saved, and the Jews were being saved, and they didn't want to be the same. So what Paul does is he spends chapter 1 on personal blessings that 
that Gentiles have along with Jews. Then in chapter 2, he spends a lot of time on how we are one. In fact, if you look uh, up above there, he said in verse uh, 17, uh, verse 16, that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were far off, you Gentiles, you were far off from Judaism, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Verse 22, the, the theme is, in whom ye are also, ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit for this cause. All right, here's the cause. The cause was, Paul was saying to the Gentiles, I want you to experience all the blessing God has for you. I want you to have all of the riches of His grace. And secondly, I want you to understand that you and the Jews are all one. And I want you, church of Ephesus, I want you to understand that what God wants is to bring a revival of harmony and spiritual empowerment and blessedness to this church. And I'm so burdened that you have this, I fell on my knees. For this cause, verse 14, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a pastor's heart Paul had. He looked out over his flock. He was so hungry for them to enjoy the blessings of God. He fell to his knees and began to cry out. And notice what he prayed. He said, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's a direct reference to the unity he desires in that church. Any church is prone to disunity because you have different personalities, you have male and female, you have different temperaments, you have different IQs, you have different incomes, you have different skin colors, you have different, different, different. It, it is one of the miracles of the Holy Spirit of God that he brings so many people from so many backgrounds and so different in so many ways and brings them together and creates one body. And so he wanted to see this in the church of Ephesus. And he says in verse 16 that he would grant you, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now let's, let's look at that verse for a minute. Because what he's saying is, I am praying that God would send the Holy Spirit to you to do a direct work in your inner man. And then in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. In other words, he said, I want Christ to have uh, the, 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 the mastery of your heart. But to do that, something has to happen. Now, for the sake of our discussion, I'm going to tell you right up front, I believe that what Paul is talking about in this passage, as does Andrew Murray and others, that this is talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit, or I should say, as Jesus called it, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, tarry ye in Jerusalem, and not many days hence ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 1. Acts 2 says they were all gathered together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So we know that Christ's word baptism is interpreted by Luke as filled. So uh, let, let, let's, say that, let, let's say what Jesus said. I think this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's instantaneous. It follows salvation. It does not happen at the moment of salvation. Now, I understand there's a lot of controversy on that. <laughs> In fact, there's three basic reasons that people do not believe that a Christian ever gets baptized with the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit in a one-time event. We all are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and so were the disciples in John chapter 20. He breathed on them, and he said, uh, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then later, uh, there was a separate event called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And those who were baptized with the Holy Spirit were said in later parts of Acts 
to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But a lot of people, uh, there, there are people who say, well, you know, that just doesn't happen today. And the reason they say that is because, uh, because well, number one, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is, uh, that, uh, that which is, uh, um, is it imperfect? Well, it will depart. That which is imperfect will depart. Referring to, they believe, the, the completed canon of Scripture. I believe it's referring to uh, the second coming of Christ. And so do many others. Second reason people say you can't be baptized with the Holy Spirit is because of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that the moment that you're saved, you receive all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to receive because we are by one Spirit baptized into one body. That verse is talking about unity again and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring unity. That's being baptized by the Holy Spirit, not with the Holy Spirit. Then some people say, well... Uh, we shouldn't talk about the Holy Spirit. I, I've had pre people say this. Uh, you shouldn't talk about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit never talks about Himself. Because the Bible says in Acts, uh, John 16 that the Holy Spirit never speaks of Himself. Which, does, <laughs> which raises the question, uh, who wrote the Bible? Everything we know about the Holy Spirit is what the Holy Spirit wrote about Himself. The Bible's not saying that the Holy Spirit never talks about Himself, but He never speaks of Himself. Everything that He speaks comes from God, not from Himself. But something happened around the 1860s, where, whereas before there was a lot of interest in the Holy Spirit, but then the holiness movement came in, and then John Darby came in, and then uh, Schofield came in, and Schofield basically says, no, there is no filling of the Holy Spirit, or there's no baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I remember in my youth listening to John Rice and Lee Robertson and other preachers, and a constant emphasis when I was a young preacher is you've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got to have the, fill, uh, uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit. You've got to have all the fullness of God. But that has been, uh, that has been so diminished in uh, these last years that nobody talks about it in fundamental circles. All we talk about is methods. Come to our pastor's school. Learn how to use a new method and a, a new technique. Come to our college and get more knowledge. Let me tell you something. And you young men who are going to, and you young people going to Christian colleges, there is nothing you're going to learn in a classroom that can exceed or meet the power of the Holy Spirit. We've gotten to the point now today that we think all we need is that piece of paper. I preached at Bob Jones' Bible conference one day. <laughs> Dr. Bob had... Uh, Jones had written me, and he said, I, he said, here's the way you put it. I don't want you to preach. He said, I want you to get under their skin. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what that meant. <laughs> but I preached the message on Isaiah chapter 29. With your mouth you worship me, but you've removed your heart far from me, and the fear that you have of me is taught by the precepts of men. And I preached on intellectualism. Busy-handed, empty-hearted, full-headed Christians was the name of the message. And uh, preaching on intellectualism at a bastion of intellectualism like Bob Jones University is a suicide wish. And uh, uh, I sat down in this, these awful uh, museum piece seats on the platform with one light over your head. And I'm scared to death. Dr. Bob comes and sits down, puts his hand on my leg, he grins at me. He says, boy, you got a lot of people mad at you tonight. <laughs> but I asked this question. I asked this question first to the faculty. How do you determine if your graduates are fit for the ministry? What is the criteria that you're using as a college 
to determine that this young man walking across a platform is ready to go, he's spiritually fit, and he's fit for the gospel ministry. Is it his GPA? Great point average. Is that it? Is that all we have? And what I, what I challenged him about was, here are these young men, they come, they go to college for four years, and nobody talks to them about whether you have a pornography addiction problem. Nobody sits down with them and finds out their spiritual health. We are so immersed in worship of academics today and training pastors that we think a piece of paper qualifies them. Well, it doesn't. It's the last thing that qualifies you. The devil knows more than that piece of paper represents. But I didn't know that. Nobody told me that. I thought all I had to have was enough methods and hard work and techniques and enough knowledge and I could do it. Hyman Appleman, a great evangelist, a Jewish evangelist of the past, said this. He said, I believe with all my heart that there is an experience with the Holy Spirit separate from and subsequent to salvation, which has no relation to salvation as such. B. Raymond Edmonds said, the Holy Ghost coming with power is distinct and separate from conversion. R.A. Torrey said, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a work of the Holy Spirit distinct from and additional to His regenerating work. D.L. Moody said, The Holy Spirit coming upon men with power is distinct and separate from conversion. A.B. Simpson said, There's a moment when we definitely receive the Holy Ghost after conversion. Spiro Zodiates said, The baptism was to take place at one particular time, once and for all. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this passage that this is something that happens once and forever, a supreme moment of my life. And John Rice said, this gift is entirely distinct and separate from conversion. That's the way they used to preach. They used to preach in America in fundamental Baptist churches, there is an experience with the Holy Spirit distinct and separate from conversion. And then we gave that up. Because we started seeing success, I think, partly. And so Paul brings the attention back to this event, this moment in time, when a Christian makes a decision, empowered by the Spirit to make this decision, that I am going to enjoy the indwelling of Christ. Now, look at verse 16 again. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. According to the riches of His glory. Now you notice it doesn't say according to your riches. It does not say that He would grant you according to your worth, that He would grant you according to your wealth, that He would grant you according to your work, that He would grant you according to who you are, what you've done. Nothing about uh, the, the, the uh, Christian in Ephesus. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. Now what are the riches of His glory? The riches of His glory is the sum and summation of all that God is. All His attributes. The sum and summation of all the glory of God that God would reach into this overwhelming treasury of goodness and give you all you need. He did not say out of His um, wealth or out of his riches. He said, according to his riches. Now, I have a friend uh, who is a millionaire. We went to Bob Jones Academy, graduated together. We were buddies in the Navy. We worked together for a while. He became very wealthy, uh, making millions every year, but using his uh, money for the Lord. But one day, he uh, he, he invited us out to dinner. And any time he came to town or we went to his area, he would take us out to dinner. And, I mean, we would, we would get dinners. That I, we would go to restaurants that I, I didn't know existed. I mean, he would pay $100 for one person's meal. Think nothing of it. And, and, 
but later he called me. He said, Jim, he said, um, uh, we're, we're going to England. Uh, we're going to fly to London, and we are going to come back on the Queen Mary II. And we want to know if uh, y'all would like to go with us, and we'll pay for your fare, which was about $10,000. And I said, let me pray about that. We'll go. <laughs> and so we went to London and uh, got on the Queen Mary II, which was just beautiful. And for seven days, we sailed back on the ship. Now, when he bought us lunch, it was out of his riches. But when he bought us a ticket on the Queen Mary, it was according to his riches. In other words, it was a reflection of what he really had. A person could buy you an expensive lunch and not really reveal in any measure how much they really own. But a person who buys you a $10,000 ticket is acting according to his riches. Listen to me. God wants to give you according to the riches of His glory everything that you need to be strengthened in the inner man. He doesn't want to parcel it out. He's not cheap. He's not going to hold back. But you know what He wants? He wants someone who will come to Him and believe that He will grant according to the riches of His glory to have the Holy Spirit assigned to us to do an inner man work with power. But not many people do that. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart, on the behalf of Him whose heart is perfect toward Him. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro. The Lord seeketh such to worship Him. You understand that God's on, on a hunt? That God is desperate? That God is hungry? That God is looking? That God is looking all over the world to find one man, one woman, one young person that He can honor with the fullness of His glory. But nobody asks. Nobody asks. We're happy to just kind of plug along in, the, in our mundane Christianity, our our so-called normal Christianity, which is subnormal Christianity. We don't want to be stir disturbed by someone that comes along and says there's a higher calling, a deeper walk. There is a fuller life that you can have. Don't rock the boat. He says that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Now the inner man is the innermost part of our being. It's a spiritual part of us. It includes the, 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 the mind, the soul, the spirit, the heart. And he is saying here, I'm praying that God would grant you the Holy Spirit that He might strengthen your inner man by His Spirit with might. Now look down uh, to verse 20. Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Now this verse 20 is used a lot, it's quoted a lot about different things, but in the context, it's talking about all the fullness of God. It's talking about Paul's prayer that these Ephesian Christians could have all the fullness of God. In the context, and now unto Him who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, but how? According to the power that worketh in us. What power? Go back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, he starts his prayer that they might know uh, God and know about God. And he says in verse 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You, 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 do you see the connection? Paul is saying, I'm praying for you that God, uh, according to the riches of His glory, would grant you to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with might by His Spirit. By the way, the word might there is dunamis or dynamite we get from that word. To be strengthened with the power the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. God is, is pulling, God, God is pulling no punches here. God is saying through Paul, 
right out front. You can have it all. You can have the fullness of God. You can have the filling of the Spirit. You can have the indwelling of Christ. You can have the strengthening of the inner man. And it's all based on my riches. And it's all based upon my power. The same power that I used to raise Jesus from the dead, which is at work in you today. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a power at work in you if you will turn to that power. We look at ourselves as the power. We look at our character. We look at our, what, what we can accomplish. If, if there's something I'm learning, and I'm so sorry it took me so long to learn it, I, I, I am learning that I, 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 I am nothing. I am nothing. I used to think that, that if I worked long enough on a sermon and I had three points that were alliterated, one time, I remember one day I spent half an hour trying to find uh, one word on my outline that, that started with a P. A half an hour to alliterate a sermon. If I'd spent a half an hour praying over it, I would have had a better sermon. But I, I used to think, well, what I need, you know, they teach you in, in, in Bible college, if you have a right outline, uh, this, uh, this is called... Uh, homiletics, this art and science of delivering a sermon, and they teach you, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you will have a good sermon. I used to think that. I remember in homiletics class, though, uh, part of our, part of our uh, training was we had to give a sermon to the class. And I was, I was just itching to get up there. I had a sermon that would, ah, it was gold medal material. And uh, we all thought we did. We had illustrations, and we had, and we preached, and we said we're so proud of ourselves. And there was a guy in our class named Bob. Bob didn't know how to tie his shoes. Bob didn't know how to shave. He didn't know how to comb his hair. His grammar was terrible. His hygiene was questionable. Um, and he was called to preach, but he wouldn't look you in the eye. And every time he tried to talk, he stuttered. And so we all had heard the greatest in the class, namely ourselves. <laughs> and uh, I think my sermon was on humility, by the way. But anyway, uh, we finished and we sat back and now it's Bob's turn. Bob gets up there and he shuffles around and he moves his glasses and he won't look up and he starts in this monotone voice. Pitiful. Awful. But I heard a guy over here sniffling after a few minutes. And the guy over here is blowing his nose. Guy next to me is wiping his eyes. And I look down, and for some reason, there's little drops of water on my desk. The conviction of God came over that class. We almost had a revival through our masterful outline, through our uh, homiletically perfect, exegetically polished, grammatically enhanced sermon. No! From a guy who was nothing, who had nothing, and he could do nothing. But the Holy Spirit could. And he did. And I'm learning. I should say I have learned. Well, I shouldn't say I have learned. I am learning. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. That. All of this for one thing. All this preparation the prayer, the pleading with God, the granting of God of the Holy Spirit, the strengthening with dunamis power in the inner man. All of that is for one thing, my friend, and that is described by one word, that. And that word, that, means so that, in order that. So he's saying, I'm praying you'll have all of this, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. In other words, it takes Holy Spirit preparation. It takes prayer to God the Father. It takes faith on the part of Paul. It takes a surrender on the part of the saint. It's a preparation to bring a person to this point. And then he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that, so that, in order that. Every time you see the word that in this passage of Scripture, it is a, it's describing a chain of things that have to happen, each one dependent on the one before. It's not a grocery list 
of different items that he's praying for. It's a chain of things that you have to have this in order to have this, in order to have this, in order to have this. And so he's saying, I'm praying that you'll be strengthened with might so that you can have the fullness of God, that you can have the indwelling of Christ. And why is he praying that you will be strengthened with might? Do you know people who have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit were so overwhelmed they felt they were going to die? And some have had to cry out to God to stop because they couldn't take it anymore. They couldn't take the joy. They couldn't take the love, uh, the, the waves of liquid love from, from God. They couldn't take the intensity. They really literally were about to die. They need to be strengthened. But there's a greater reason, and that is, watch this, uh, that he says in verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. In other words, I'm praying that you will be strengthened so your faith will be strengthened to welcome the indwelling Christ into your heart. You have to be prepared for this. Then that ye being rooted and grounded in love. I wish we had time to show you the difference between being rooted in the love, uh, a love for Christ and being grounded in a love for Christ because one is nurture, a root, one is stability, a foundation. And so God, and Paul uses this dual metaphor to say, this is what you have to have. You have to be rooted firmly. You have to be grounded securely. And that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. Then he says... Uh, that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. In other words, he's saying, I want you to be so rooted in your love for Christ that you may be able to comprehend His love for you. And by the way, the word comprehend here uh, is probably better apprehend. It means to possess, it means to seize, it means to take control, it means to grasp eagerly, it means to claim as your own. It goes much deeper than comprehending in the sense of intellectual understanding. It's talking about taking advantage of the moment and the situation, believing by faith and grabbing it. And so he said, I'm praying you'll be rooted and grounded in love for Christ that you may be able to comprehend and know, verse 19, to know the love of Christ. To know the love of Christ. My friend, if there, if there is a prayer that all of us should pray, is that we may know Him. That we may know the love of Christ. But this word is a, an experiential love, because he says this love, this knowledge goes beyond knowledge, it passeth knowledge, it surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now let me just summarize what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying to his church is, you've got a division in the church, and you're not enjoying all that God wants you to have as a Christian. For this cause... I am moved to bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named. I am moved to pray on your behalf that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, that He would strengthen you with might, resurrection might, in your inner man, so that you would have the faith to believe and to embrace the love of God that is so wide and so high and so deep and so vast that you cannot comprehend it, you cannot understand it, it passes knowledge, but this is what makes up all the fullness of God. I want you, Paul said, I want you to have all the fullness of God. But some Christians live such a subnormal Christianity that when they look up and see normal Christianity, they think it's abnormal. There's a point in grace in which uh, 
which is higher than the average, uh, higher than the average Christian, like the average Christian is higher than the average worldling. There's a point of grace beyond the average Christian that God wants us to attain to. God wants you to enjoy all the fullness of God. I mean, I mean an intimacy. I mean a relationship. I mean a fellowship. I mean a a, a, a indwelling of Christ that. Uh, it will so change your life, you, you think it, it, you, you will be shocked at what God can do for you. I was at Northland when they asked me to come and preach. And uh, I don't know what it was. I don't know what to call it. I'm, very, I'm, I'm even hesitant to share it with you, but I will tell you this. I was walking back and forth in my room. The tears were running down my face. The presence of God was there. The joy of the Lord was there. But let me tell you what was especially there. A love for Christ. I had more love in my heart for Christ than I'd ever known. And I want to tell you, I wouldn't trade that moment for anything in my life. Especially when I compared it to the empty years where nothing had happened. My prayer for you tonight has been that somehow that God would break up the fallow ground of your mind. To give you a hunger and thirst for righteousness. To help you to see there's something better than what you're experiencing. There's something greater God wants you to have it. God wants you to have all the fullness of God. God wants you to have the indwelling of Christ. God says you can have it. In verse 20, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Just, ask, just think it first and realize that God wants to do more than you can think. Then ask it and realize God wants to do more than you ask. In fact, abundantly more than you can ask or think. In fact, Exceeding abundantly more than you can ask or think. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Maybe what we need to do is, is just think, I would like to have all the fullness of God and start praying, God, show me how to have all the fullness of God. And I tell you, you start down that path, my friend, and you have a promise that he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. He wants it for you and He wants it for the church. Look at verse 21. Unto Him be glory in the church. This is the whole purpose that Paul says, I'm praying for you, church of Ephesus. You've got a divided church and you've got people who are not enjoying all the fruits of their salvation. I'm praying there will be glory in the church, glory of unity, glory of enjoyment, glory of, of enjoying the spiritual gifts of God. Unto Him... Be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Now let me end by saying this. Spurgeon put it this way again. I, I like Spurgeon. But he said, There has never been an instance yet of a man really seeking spiritual blessings of God without receiving them. George Whitfield said, our Savior loves to let us see greater things. Andrew Murray said, When God puts a desire into your heart, He will fulfill it. The desire of the righteous shall be granted. He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. My friend, what God is waiting for is someone to ask for all the fullness of God. And when they ask, and when they have that desire... There's never been, as Spurgeon said, an instance yet of a man really seeking spiritual blessings of God without receiving them. Do you want that? That's the question. Do you want that? I hope that God will work in your heart. I hope that in a very special way you'll desire great and mighty things. You'll have a hunger and thirst for God you've never known because God will satisfy your hunger and your thirst like you've never known. Father, I pray you'd bless the message tonight. I pray you'd speak to our hearts. 
I pray, Lord, that you would take these words from your servant, from your word, and by your spirit. And like arrows of truth, Lord, that you would appoint them to our hearts and that you would bring about uh, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I pray truly, Lord, for everyone in our church here, Lord, that you would uh, grant them according to the riches of your glory, that they may be strengthened with might by your spirit and their inner man in order that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. Do what you have to do, Holy Spirit, by your might to strengthen them to accomplish this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.